Well, good morning, church. Welcome. We're working our way Sunday mornings through 1 John. This is the second in the series, Walking in the Light. 1 John and the path to living deeply in Christ. This morning, I want to talk to you about taking the holiness of God seriously. The text is, I'm going to look at two verses predominantly today. 1 John chapter 1. Verses 5 and 6. Let's look at these together. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. So here, what's the message, John? How do you start this off? Well, God is light, okay? And it's not enough just to say it positively. He has to say it negatively, the same idea. In him is no darkness, And then to hit on that a little bit, no darkness at all, not even a teeny bit. So there are implications to this truth. Verse 6, if we say, so he's dealing with professing Christians, if we say we have fellowship with him while, so at the same time, we walk in darkness. Please notice, he's talking about walking in darkness. I need to, everything that I'm going to say today I'm not talking about Christian people. We all fail. We strive for holiness. We want to please Jesus. And we come to places where we fail. We have Hebrews, these sins that kind of cling closely to us. We trip up. We mess up. We repent. I'm not talking about that kind of person at all. Someone who, there's this walking in darkness, a a persistence, a practice, a justifying, mentally justifying walking in darkness. So if we do that while we say we have fellowship with God, well, John's, uh, he's not trying to spare feelings here. We lie, liars, and do not practice the truth. It's quite a text. My, uh, my oldest brother could still tell you the night long ago, my teenage years, when he was with me in my 1962 Volkswagen Beetle on a freezing cold prairie night when it died by the side of the road. And my brother Paul said to me, you haven't been putting gas line antifreeze in this tank, have you? No. No, I hadn't. And so we walked close to a mile in the freezing night, found a garage, bought some gas line antifreeze, took it back, put it in the tank, waited. Nothing. Car wouldn't start. Now we're freezing cold. I had no money for a tow truck, no CAA, nothing like that. There were no cell phones. We got out, put it in neutral, kind of steered, pushed the car to the closest garage. It's late now. They checked the plugs. They checked the battery. They tried boosting the car. Nothing. And finally, the mechanic, he got in. He tried starting the car himself. Opened the door, looked me in the eye and said, when's the last time you put gas in this thing? I'll never forget that story. You can have everything else right. 
But if you don't have gas in the tank, you're just, you're just wasting your time. Some things have to be in place before anything else will work. You don't have to have everything right, but there are some things you have to have right. So that's what our text today is all about. It's all about what you have to have right for anything else in your Christian profession and your Christian walk to be genuine and fruitful. First John, First John is a letter all about fellowship with God. That's what John's writing about. And he'll deal with that subject. We'll see as we work through the text. He'll deal with it from a lot of angles. He'll deal with many hindrances. He'll put forward a lot of warnings, solutions. But, but right at the beginning of his letter, there's something else he wants to make clear first. So, so when God says, when John says God is light, He's, he has no desire to enter into a theological debate about the Godhead. His concern really isn't primarily theology. It's about fellowship, fellowship with God. When he says God is light, there's, there's one big idea he's trying to get across. Anybody knows, anybody knows, light and darkness don't blend. They don't combine. I mean, one always displaces the other. The lights go out, darkness reigns. Go into a dark room, turn the lights on, the darkness goes away. They don't mix. One always displaces the other. They don't fellowship. They can't coexist. So I have four thoughts I want to try and draw out of this text, but but I need to do something else first. I, I need to make sure you don't misunderstand what John is trying to say in these two verses. John writes these challenging words to Christians. That's clear. He writes with a heart full of gospel understanding about the wonder and certainty of pardon and grace and the imputed righteousness through Christ Jesus. So when John writes these pretty stout-sounding words about holiness and the need for holiness, he's not abandoning Christ for legalism in our text. Believers, believers are eternally secure in Christ. He has mercy for all of my future sin and failure. Grace flows into my heart as thoroughly as my ongoing repentance brings sins and failures to Christ. So that needs to be underscored first. But John has a deeper concern in our text. He's concerned about people who say one thing. If we say we have fellowship with him, who say one thing, but who walk in a different direction. They say they have fellowship with God, but they walk, they practice a life of darkness. So, so he's concerned, clearly, John is concerned about professing Christians who, who just may come to see the wonder of pardon as, as meaning a divine indifference to willfully indulged continued sin. 
So that's the only danger I'm dealing with in these four points. And I need all of us to understand that before we start. So let's look at four thoughts from these texts, these verses. Point number one, what God is like determines what fellowship with him must be like. Okay, what God is like determines what fellowship with him must be like. So there's John. God is light. He tells us God is light so we will know what the terms of fellowship are. You can see it in the construction of the text itself. Verse 5 is all about God. Verse 6 is all about us, fellowship with God. So he's clearly saying this is what God is like. This is what our fellowship with God must be like. A implies B. That's also why in verse 5, John doesn't just say God is light and leave it. He, he, he kind of tips his hand. He can't let it go. In addition to saying God is light, he has to add the negative as well. In him, there is no darkness at all. So that's John's way of teaching that God, God never ever bends toward anything unholy. There's no darkness at all in him. impossible for him to compromise. It's impossible for God to overlook. It's impossible for God just to excuse. Those, those responses just aren't in God's character. He's light with no darkness mixed in. There's no darkness at all. I think we need to analyze what that means. It's not just that God doesn't like sin, like you don't like going to the dentist. No, he doesn't mean that. He means, he means th- there's nothing in God that relates, except wrath and judgment, there's nothing in God that relates to darkness. Darkness doesn't exist in God. It's, it's totally foreign. It's totally unrelatable to any other part of his being and character. There's nothing in God to blend with sin. It's a divine impossibility. Notice, this is the first truth about God that John deals with. Where would you have started? Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness? Where where would you have started? If you want to enjoy fellowship with God, John says, here's where you have to start. You have to start with what he is actually like. He's light with no darkness at all blended in. So all of the myths, all of the illusions, all of the the false presuppositions, they have to be stripped away right off the bat if we're going to have fellowship with God. Now, if you're content to have a pretend Christianity, you can define God on your own terms. You'll You'll have defining God on your own terms. You will have the same kind of relationship with God that I used to have when I was five and six with all the other cowboys in our backyard. But if you really want to know the true God, 
well, then you don't get to define the relationship. You don't get to define the terms of the relationship. You can't create a God of your own liking. If you want to know God, enjoy God, have fellowship with God, then first of all, first of all, focus on his holiness. God's holiness, five defines six in these verses. God's holiness defines the fellowship. It sets the terms of the fellowship. You can see this talked about in so many ways in different words. Look at Hebrews 12, 14. Strive, strive, there's the verb. Strive for peace with God and, so it's not just peace that we strive for, and for holiness. Why? Well, without which, the which, by the way, is the holiness, without which no one will even see the Lord. There it is in plain terms. I mean, holiness determines fellowship or lack thereof with God. Um, You have to be constantly holy. This is what drives us to the cross, right? This is what makes us embrace the atonement. But you have to start here. You You have to be constantly holy or the fellowship ends. And clearly here, the writer isn't talking about the imputed righteousness we receive from Christ. He's talking... He's talking about something you strive for. He makes that very plain. Strive for this kind of holiness. This is, this is, that's the effect of receiving pardon and grace. It makes you strive for holiness out of love for Christ. If you don't strive for holiness, you can go to church all you want. You can sing all you want. You can raise your hands as high as you want but you will never see God in any of it. I mean, that's quite a thing. Point number two. Our natural tendency is to maybe deceive our hearts about the importance of holiness for knowing God. I see that in that sixth verse. If if we say we have fellowship with God, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You can say you have fellowship and walk in darkness. You can do that. But he says you're, you're not, you're not functioning in truth anymore. So, so maybe we all need to take our index finger and run it under each word in that last sentence. Lots of people claim to know God. Lots of people claim to have fellowship with God. Lots of people pronounce themselves Christians, but if they continue to walk that ongoing practice now, if they continue to walk in darkness, in unholiness, they're wrong. They're lying to God. They're lying to themselves. That's what, that's not me. That, that's what John says. This is my opinion, but I think there's a growing attitude toward the importance of holiness that I think sets more lightly on us than it did, for example, on my grandparents. I think we hold kind of a modified view of what the scriptures actually teach. What, what does, what does cherished, practiced, continual sin do to someone who professes Christ? 
And I think, here's what I think is becoming the common response to that question I just asked. The common response is kind of like, well, I used to really be on fire for the Lord. Things haven't been going as well lately. Uh, Like I used to be a nine out of 10 Christian. Now I'm probably a five or a six. But Jesus, Jesus still loves me. I'm saved by grace, not by works. I can live with a few less stars in my crown. And I think, I think John might just be saying in our text, you need to check your heart. It might be an unredeemed heart. Point number three. Willful, persistent sin. Please notice as I pause that that's what we're talking about here. Not failure that you repent of. Willful, persistent sin plunges the soul into darkness even though Jesus may be verbally confessed to the point where the confessor believes he or she is following Jesus. I know that's a long point. Here's a text that probably makes it as plain as can be. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says, does this sound like John? person who says he has fellowship but walks in darkness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So on that day, 22, many will say to me, here it is again, Lord. How many times do we say Lord in our worship courses, in our songs, in our praying, in our praise? On that day, many not a few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't even think we like reading verses like that. But we need to know for certain, at least honestly, what is happening in this text. We need to see Jesus' meaning with with full clarity here. Jesus is not describing hypocrites in those verses. Hypocrites are pretenders, people who know they aren't following the Lord, but want to give the impression that they are. They act righteous in certain settings because they want to fool people into thinking they're the real deal. That's what a hypocrite is. But Jesus doesn't seem to be describing pretenders. He he seems to be describing people who are genuinely surprised to hear these words from the Lord. In other words, they thought they were following Jesus. I don't know how else to interpret those, those words. They're puzzled words in verse 22. Look at it again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? So these appear to be people who are saying, what's going on here? They're stunned. Now, why are they surprised? Were were, were the instructions about holiness unclear? Did God not give proper directions? No. I don't think that's the problem. I mean, you can, you can look at some of the verses we've been reading. I'll just go through them quickly. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Here's another one. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us. That's what grace does. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's the striving that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at this one. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there you have it. I mean, there are instructions. No holiness, no relationship with God. Light and darkness, they just displace each other. No matter what religious speeches are made. So, so... So why, this is, this is the issue, why are so many people confused about this? Remember, Jesus said many would come to him on judgment day. Lord, Lord. And so John starts his letter. He's 90, probably doesn't have long to live. He writes to Christians and professing Christians. And he starts his letter with the one truth about God that we might find the hardest to accept. I mean, for, for all of the singing and talking and reading and praying we do in church about the holiness of God, there's, there's a part, part of it we don't easily embrace. I mean, we, we don't culturally relate to God's intolerance with sin and wickedness because those things don't bother us as much how can they bother God as much? Is God, is God allowed to be offended by things that no longer offend me? In fact, we learn, I think, we learn to make any serious talk about these sins and divine judgment. We, we kind of have found a way to make them look a little silly. You've heard the questions. Do you mean God's going to send me to hell for one sexual indiscretion? Do you mean to say that a good, loving God would send someone to hell just for telling one lie? Are you honestly saying, Pastor Don, that God would bar me from heaven just because, you know, I had too much to drink at a party? And we all know, I mean, those questions just make us back up a bit. We don't want to sound silly. We know we're being tricked. Because there are never good answers to silly questions. And so we all, we all know the kind of unrest that those questions bring. Of course, we all want to say, no, God's not like that. That's not how the Christian life works. And I think probably that's a reasonably good answer to fairly simplistic questions. But here's what I want to say. I think they're reasonably good answers but they're also, it's also a very dangerous answer. Here's why. It's dangerous because in trying not to sound too prudish, judgmental, harsh, legalistic, I don't want to sound that way, but what happens is we've moved bit by bit 
away from some of the things the Bible does say about the drunkard and the liar and the sexually immoral. And what the Bible does say is, no, (laughs) you can't do these things and enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul says it just so clearly. But because the question cleverly takes those sins and breaks them down into tiny events, just one lie, one sexually immoral act, one overindulgence, because it's phrased that way, well, none of us wants to draw the line separating the sinner from God. But just because we all hate to blow the whistle and draw the line doesn't mean God's heart towards sin has changed. Clever questions don't make God more tolerant of sin. Which is precisely why John wants to move the standard in the opposite direction. John wants all these Christians, he tells them, they need to exercise the greatest care possible about committing any kind of sin because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. It shouldn't surprise us, I guess, that John opens his letter with these penetrating words about light and darkness. He, he, didn't, he didn't make this imagery up himself. He had heard Jesus give his life's mission in this world, in much the same terms. When Jesus talked about why he came, and if you say his purpose was to forgive us our sins, you're partially correct, but that was only the means to another glorious end. Here's what Jesus said, using the same kind of terminology. I have come into the world as, there it is, light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Or in John's words, you you can't walk in darkness, remain in darkness, practice. He's not talking about failure that you repent of. This, This embracing of a practice, a remaining in darkness. Jesus said, well, I came so people would never, ever, ever do that. Four, almost done. This truth that only those who turn to Christ from their sins can ever know God is the direction-setting truth of any life. Something that is easily missed in the last phrase of our text. Do you see it in that sixth verse? If we say we have fellowship with God, While we walk in darkness, we lie and and do not practice the truth. If we say, so clearly John is dealing with someone who, who justifies his or her dark lifestyle. They've been confronted at some point. They've been challenged by the gospel. They've been called to come to the light, to leave the darkness behind That's the only thing that would cause them to verbalize these inner reasonings. If we say, 
And if you start living that way, John says, it's highly improbable that biblical truth will easily sway your thoughts. That's what John means when he says this, professing Christians will never be able to practice. See that verb? Practice the truth. You, you, you lock yourself into a course of self-deception. Here's where John is taking us. You, you and I, we must learn to build everything about who we are in Christ Jesus around the holiness of Father God, about the fact that he is light and he mixes with no darkness at all. So whatever other mistakes you make in life, anchor on this. Make all the mistakes on the side of safety, on the side of purity. You will never, ever lose trying to be too holy. As I said in my introduction, John is concerned about professing Christians in an ongoing practice and love of darkness. The thing is, Jesus gets no glory from their lives. The world sees nothing different, nothing wonderful, nothing delivering. And the greatest tragedy of all, these people come to live, actually waste large slices of a precious, only-to-be-lived-once life, not really knowing God at all. You can come to Jesus. You can come to Jesus with the darkest of lives. He will cleanse. He will pardon. He has a love for redeeming sinners. There's grace for every truly repentant heart, even repeated sin. But what you can't do is willfully stay in the dark and profess that you're following Christ. Clear your mind. Think biblically about holiness. There's a reason John compares God to light. And it's this. Your life is never diminished by holiness. Not ever. It is filled with the Creator's highest purpose, Christ's greatest joy and fellowship with God that, well, as John says, is walking, walking in the light. Come to Christ, receive pardon, mercy, forgiveness, leave the darkness behind and walk in the light. Tonight, we're going to continue with our series, Soul Food. Last Sunday night, we were looking at the subject of uh, our Old Testaments, the 39 books of our Old Testaments. Our uh, Roman Catholic friends would have 13 more books than that. Our Jewish friends would take 27 books of the New Covenant, of the New Testament, and they wouldn't include those. How, how do we know we have the right number of books? That's what we looked at last Sunday night. Tonight, I want to look at uh, the New Testament. How, how, how did we get the New Testament? How do we know we have the right books in the New Testament canon? What did Jesus say about it? That's what we'll be studying tonight at uh, 6.30. Let's pray. We want to walk in the light. We aren't perfect. 
but we want to please you in all that we do. We want to face every day joyfully and repentantly with soft hearts, tender to the leading of your Holy Spirit. We don't ever want the dark self-deception of turning divine grace into indifference towards sin. God's light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And that's why he sent Jesus to be the light of the world as we put our trust in him. Bless your word to our hearts as we continue to study it together. Bless each one in their homes. Jesus, keep us safe. Bless Cedar View Community Church. And we love you with all our hearts. And we love your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Love one another.